Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and open them to two places, Genesis chapter 12, but we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Genesis chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I've entitled our study today, There's Something About Sarah, Something About Sarah, and we're in the middle of this epic chapter in the book of Genesis, really one of the most epic chapters in all the Bible. The call and the promise from God to Abram. And we know, and if you don't already, it's important to learn that Abram or Abraham is not a perfect man. And we sometimes impose upon the scriptures something that isn't there. And one of those things that we impose upon the scriptures is that God only uses good and perfect people that never make mistakes. But God shows us right in the beginning that Abram's faith in God wasn't perfect. He had his struggles and his stumbles and his failures along the way. But his love for God carried him through. And even in our study tonight, you'll see a great error he makes. And this this won't be the first time. He will do it again. Or I should say it won't be the last time. It is his first time, but it won't be the last time. And sometimes we believe that we can't be used of God because all we can see is our failures and our difficulties. And we're reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's writing to a church very similar to ours, and he, in the beginning of his letter, is writing to the people that are receiving it, and look what he says in verse 26, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God, and mark mark this phrase, he's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world, that the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring nothing to the things that that, that are. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. This is one of those verses, all you need to do is look around the room and see its validity. There's not many wise among us. There's not many among us that are mighty or noble And it's important that you know that it doesn't say not any, because there certainly are some, but it says not many. That God draws us out. He brings us to a place where he will enable us so that when we're used, people are shocked by it. That they are just standing there like, what is happening? Who is this God that you serve? Now, I know sometimes this verse is used to make those of you that haven't been blessed in this world, maybe you don't have education or you have a difficult upbringing, some people will come to this and be very discouraged by it. But don't. 
I don't believe that's God's heart at all for you to be discouraged by your station in life. Even, even more so as we were praying today, just to be satisfied and content with where God has us. It's not you, this isn't a verse to teach us somehow to beat up ourselves and say, oh, woe is me and look what I don't have, but rather to be encouraged. The fact that God would choose such people as us, foolish and weak, and that's the list. God has chosen the foolish to shame, the weak to shame, the base, the empty, the despised, so that he brings to nothing the things that are. And this is the plan of God, for you to embrace who you are in Christ. For you never to forget, those of you with a testimony, never forget where you came from. Don't dwell too much there, but don't forget where you came from. Don't forget the pit that God delivered you from. And those of you that may have been kept from the pit, maybe raised in a godly home and you didn't have to deal with some kind of testimony that is dramatic, well then you praise God. And you remember what God kept you from so that he gets all the glory. And what this section really tells me is that no matter who you are, if you are wise or not wise, if you are foolish or not foolish, if you are base or not base, if you are despised or not despised, one thing I'm reminded is that God will use anyone. Amen? God will use anyone. So no more excuses. No more looking at your own failures and kind of looking at the condition of your life today and go, well, you know, God can't use me because I'm not. No, God can use anyone and he will use anyone that turns to him. Jot it down in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. Paul writes again a letter to that church a little later on and he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The treasure is not the vessel. The treasure is in the vessel. We have the treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And we have a commitment here in our leadership and our service to you. Our desire is to direct you past us and get you to the Lord. That, that is where your hope lies. It is not in man. It is not in the leadership of the church. It's not in an elder or a pastor. It's not in a godly woman or, or a ministry leader. Your hope is and must be in the Lord. It's the earthen vessel that holds the treasures of God. And we see this so clearly. You, you can't look to man. Man is not your hope. The choice to abide in him is a, great, a place of great strength so that he might get the glory. Which brings us, with that in mind, that's the New Testament principle that's built upon every single person that God's used in all ages. It, it doesn't matter. Every single person that God has used is of the same category. Earthen vessels. And we come back to an earthen vessel that we were introduced to last time, Abram. And forgive me if I use Abram and Abraham, Sarai and Sarah interchangeably, because we most notably know them as Abraham and Sarah. And we were introduced to the Abram last week in that or last time in that glorious call and how he responded to it, the great man of faith. But this great man of faith is also a great man of failure. A great man of failure. And we see already in the same chapter of the call and response, we see already 
a great lapse of faith. So I draw your attention there in chapter 12 of Genesis. Pick up with me in verse 8. Verse 8, we'll overlap in our study previously. He says, He moved from there to the mountains east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And so Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, and they will let you live. So please say that you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So in the midst of taking a step of faith, understand this principle. You ready? Principle number one. Steps of faith are always met with crisis of faith. There will be an attack upon your step of faith directly. And we see that with Abram with this famine. It it causes a great lapse of faith, a great crisis of faith. I mean, he stepped out strong for faith and immediately he's met with resistance a real famine. It is a real crisis. It is a real difficulty. It is a real challenge. It's not perceived. It's not made up. It is a real, it's a famine in the land that moves Abram's actions. Anytime a crisis comes, it's going to move you to action. I was reminded recently as I was teaching in other churches uh, of that scripture. And I taught the same studies here, but it was just been fresh as I taught it a few times in one week where the Bible says, I think it's in Proverbs 18, that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. And built upon that, that scripture was used to build upon in Nahum chapter one, that, the, that God is known as a stronghold in the day of trouble. And I was reminded that days of trouble cause us to run. We're gonna run. Even the world, you know how the world will develop something, science will discover something, and then they'll claim like they invented it. But in reality, they're revealing the principles of God. They didn't invent it. And in our lives, there is that thing that they call the fight or flight response. That it will bring up a response. A crisis will come and your response will be fight or flight. Well, I suggest to you biblically that the response to crisis is always flight. You're going to run, and you're going to run somewhere. You may run away. You may run to the left. You may run to the right. You may run to the bottle. You may run to some place of comfort, some coping mechanism. But the Bible declares that the safest place for you to run is to the Lord. He's a place of safety for you. He is a stronghold for you. He is your protector, your defender. Abram is met with a famine In a very real way, he runs, and just note it, it'll be a principle throughout the scriptures, he runs to Egypt. God did not call him to go to Egypt. God did not direct him to go to Egypt, but the famine moved him, moved him. And it's another truth that I like to share, that in times of trouble and in times of great difficulty, don't make big decisions. Wait it out. Wait upon the Lord. 
Or another way of putting that, don't make big decisions on bad days. Wait on the Lord that God might renew your strength. And here we are, Abram, making a big, bad decision because of a very real crisis. Egypt was known at the time as the breadbasket of the region. So in a very logical way, it makes sense that he would go to Egypt because the word would be that there's plenty of food there during times of famine. And at this point in Abram's life, he's not mature enough that he can simply choose to trust in the Lord. It's a test of his maturity. So he jumps very quickly to figure things out, deal with them, while all the while God allowed this famine to affect Abram so that he might learn how to trust to, turn to him and trust him in the crisis. But he's just not there yet because God is bringing him on a path of maturity. He's not that fully developed man of faith. He's in the early stages of his faith being developed. As many of us go from faith to faith, remember there's still room to grow. There may be even in the crisis in your life that your, your faith is not mature yet to the place where you immediately turn to the Lord. Some of you, you still, after many years, you're still turning to something first and go, oh man, I already know I shouldn't do this, but you're still in there because God is continuing to mature us. Not only that, but it stirs up a concern about his wife, as you see. Now Abram is not only facing the crisis of famine, but he's worried about the beauty of his wife. The beauty of his wife is greatly concerning to him, so he starts to scheme. And this manipulative spirit, you know, has been seen in his lineage, and now we have the first recorded lie in the father of faith. And he's worried that she would attract too much attention, and that as that attraction would come, the, the, the leaders or even Pharaoh himself would want her, and in order to get her, would take him out. And then his fear grows a life of its own, overwhelming his faith. Now let me just say here, this concern with his wife's beauty is not without merit. It's not without merit. History tells us that Egyptian men were very fond of Semitic women. And they would find a woman they liked, and with the authority, the absolute authority that was given to them, they would kill their husband. So it's not like he's making it up. There is a real concern here. However... Even with a real concern, that's no excuse to respond with faithlessness. You know how we can come up with good reasons, but they actually just become bad excuses for our behavior and not taking full responsibility. Well, we have good reasons. Yeah, but is that reason just a sorry excuse for your lack of obedience? And I have noticed this in my life many times. I'm sure you have in yours. Fear will take you places that you never thought you'd go. And that's where Abram is here. He's going to make a very bad decision based on this fear. Rooted in, based in truth, but it hasn't happened yet. He's made a decision on the hypothetical. And again, you don't want to make decisions based on non-realities. You want to deal with what's in front of you. Notice in verse 13, he tells her, his precious wife, please say that you're my sister. If you like to write in your Bibles, in verse 13, just say he asked her to lie. Now, asking those that are close to you to sin is never going to lead to anything good. 
You can just mark that down, record it, jot it down in your notes, write it in the margin of your Bible for whatever reason, whatever it is. Asking someone you love, asking your spouse to lie, asking your kids to lie, asking your friends to lie, it will never lead anywhere. It will never lead anywhere good. It will never produce the righteousness of God. It will never help the situation. Tell, you, tell them you're my sister. And then he gives his reasoning, so it'll be well for me and that I may live. It's going to change our relationship, you know. It's going to, they're going to take you away from me, but at least we'll both still be alive. Now, there is even some semblance of truth here in this statement where you're always looking for the, let me, and I just think this is a word for the Lord. I don't have it in my notes, but I just, this word that comes to mind right now as I'm teaching is technicalities. If you're the kind of person that likes to live in the technicalities of life, you just need to repent. So would you please, would you just please tell me your sister, because you know, technically, as you work through all of our ancestry and you check the app and you see where we fit, somewhere in the tree, technically you have some kind of sister relation with me. So technically, I'm not really... No, no, just be honest. I'm asking you to be a liar and deceive so that maybe I'll live. I don't know what's going to happen to you, but hopefully I will live. And it's a great crisis. An external crisis created an internal crisis, created a marital crisis, created a husband that would then demean his wife to use her manipulatively, even if he has some sort of good motive, which we don't quite know. And so know this, no matter how strong you are, no matter to what place of strength you grow, no matter how spiritual you become, no matter how much faith you muster up, you and I are still prone in a moment's notice to fall into the flesh. And we must take the flesh seriously. I'm certain today that those among us, those of you guys connected to us by technology, I'm certain that if I would ask for some sort of response about how many of you take sin, absolute sin, seriously? Oh, yay, yay, I do too. I take sin so seriously. And for that, I commend you, as you and I should. We should take known sin very seriously. But let me ask you this. Do you also take your flesh equally seriously? Do you take your flesh Another way of thinking about your flesh is not so much our physical. It's not the Bible doesn't use a spiritual. The spiritual definition of flesh when it's used in the Bible is not our skin and bones. It speaks of our old sinful habits or the old life. Or another way of thinking it is that what the world calls coping mechanisms, trying to get through things, trying to assuage the pain, just trying to numb the, numb the difficulty and you know, just make it through by some non, you know, some sinful way. The Bible calls flesh. When you and I are to run to the Lord and trust him with, remember, the enemy just knows the absolute place of peace for you is the absolute place of faith for you. When you come to a confidence in faith, you also have the benefit of that, which is peace. You, you have the peace of God that is given to us by the grace of God. But if you fall into the flesh, you coddle the flesh. You go back to compromise. You will stumble. And yeah, it's true. Though a man fall seven times, he'll rise again. 
But what that Bible doesn't say is how long you stay down. What the Bible doesn't say is all the consequences that come from that headlong, well, you know, God will forgive me. Well, yes, he will. The provision of the blood of Jesus Christ is to forgive us of all sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, yes, yes. But what about the consequences? The consequences aren't so quickly erased. What about the people you affected? I mean, we look at Abram here and we see, oh, he's kind of leading and man of faith. But how does Sarai feel? Okay, I guess so. And we know later on, she also makes some suggestions. So neither one of them are perfect. I mean, very similar to us. But how disappointing sin is. Have you not found that to be true yet? Sin is so disappointing. It does not promise what, it does not deliver what it promises. And sin begins with messing around in the flesh. Letting our guards down. Going into places that we never should be. Listen, the challenges we face are to be used to grow our faith. They are not tests for us to pass in handling ourselves as much as they are situations to remind us of our utter dependence. Because as much as we go from faith to faith, you could also say we go from trial to trial, difficulty to difficulty, as the Lord builds our faith. Would you turn over to Romans chapter 5 with me, please? I want to show you this. Romans chapter 5. This verse just popped into my mind right now. I want to share it with you. Romans chapter 5. Pick up there in verse 1 with me. On these same exact themes that we're talking about in the life of Abram. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces endurance or perseverance in some of your translations. And character. Perseverance comes character, verse 4. And character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Trials bring us back to the cross where we're reminded of the faithfulness of Christ. That he died for us, not as righteous men and women, but as unrighteous and God demonstrates his love to us. God desire, God's desire is that we learn to trust him in new areas. Not just the familiar areas. New levels. Not just the same level. New ways. New degrees. Such as we've never known before. And often the pathway he allows that is through circumstances that are outside of our control. That we might be continually reminded of the sovereign care of our Father, even in the pain. There's a fullness of maturity that's being worked out in your life even right now through the circumstances that He's allowed. And you can see how we delay and how we complicate and how we make things worse when we manipulate and take things on our own. We start moving and working deals and taking care of this. And it might give some temporary human peace, 
but it's not the will of God. Never. Now, notice verse 14. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, some of you guys see Ed, he was right. Well, yeah, he was right in his observation, in his concern. It's validated here. You, you may even be in a place like that right now. Where you see, Pastor, I hear what you're saying and I know what you're saying, but I want you to know I was right. Okay. And how does that validate the sinful decisions that came from you being right? It doesn't. And notice, it goes, goes on. It says in verse 16, he treated Abraham well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male female servants, female donkeys and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh. And it's like, look, here's another one. The Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Oh, now the truth comes out. There is a philosophy of this world that you must deal with because we were all raised from it, especially if you were raised in the public school system. This is the philosophy that was put, it is a way of thinking of the world, and that is the end justifies the means. And I am certain that most, if not all of us, have used that to justify bad behavior in our lives. The end justifies the means, which basically means you can do whatever you want along the way as long as it gets the desired result. And we measure everything by the desired result, or at least the perceived desired result, instead of the process. So that, you know, if you had 10 decisions to make, and you made eight of them uh, right, and two of them sinfully, and it ends up the way that you wanted, well then, hey, look at the end. And God says, no, I don't want you to look at the end. I want you to live today. I want you to live in the moment. I don't want you trying to manipulate the end. I want you to make the right decision today. Well, what about, I want you to make the right decision today, right now. That's the answer. They're like, what am I supposed to do? And what's going to happen? And what if? And what about? Okay, here's the answer. Make the right decision today. With rights before. Yeah, but if I do that then, and if I do that then, if I do that then, no, 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 I won't, I'm not going to, no, I'm not, I'm not even, no, I'm going to do it this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. No. It's simple. You don't need to be confused about it. You don't need to be concerned about it. Make the right decision today. If you need to confess something, confess it today. You need to make restitution, make restitution today. You have something hidden that needs to be revealed, reveal it today. You need to extend forgiveness today, forgive today. You need to confess your bitterness, confess your bitterness today. You're faithless today, then trust God in your faithlessness and turn to Him today. The end does not justify the means. God prescribes the means and He controls the end. God prescribes the means. He gives us the pathways of life. He's given to us His Word. He has shown us the way of life. He prescribes the means and he controls the end. You can trust him with your life. You can choose to take things into your own hands. We'll see this again in Abram's life. He does the same sin again. His wife manipulates when they're given a promise. They're dealing with this issue in their home for a long time. But the end does not justify the means. 
And Abram was right. They were impressed with her beauty. With her beauty. They, 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 exactly as they thought. He knew there was something special about Sarah. And indeed there was. I wanted to draw your attention here. This is amazing. I've been reading the Bible for 30 plus years. And just yesterday I saw this. Unbelievable. It's, it's, a, it's an unbelievable revelation. I want to show you in verse 14. When he came in, the Egyptians saw the woman. They saw that she was beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. There was something special about her countenance, about her presence. It was actually drawing and powerful and outwardly and obviously attractive. And apparently, the word gets out very fast about her. I mean, consider this. These are two strangers coming in with a small little family coming into Egypt, and word spread fast. Something unusual about Sarah. Not merely, though, I believe, her outward attraction and beauty. There was something radiating from her. The hand of God is upon her life. She is living in the favor of God. She is no ordinary woman. She is married to the great man of faith, which also makes her a great woman of faith. A significant part of the true story of Abram. And there is radiating faith and trust in this family's life. The princes and the leaders wanted her, but they knew if Pharaoh saw her, then he would take her from them and there might be consequences for them. And so think about, just think about, this is a country. This, this if you, you just think through, you know, entering in, you think of the United States of America and a couple enters in, I don't know, enters in through uh, Texas. They just come into the country through Texas and before you know it, the President of the United States knows about them and knows about how pretty that his wife is. I mean, this is, this is supernatural. There is a natural part of this, but there's also a supernatural part of this. And the princes and the ambassadors and the ruling governors of the nation of Egypt all begin to talk about this couple. And they just become a conversation piece. There's a pretty woman, pretty woman, pretty woman. Oh man, you know what? Pharaoh needs to know about this. I mean, it's more than her outward beauty. I know that that is the emphasis here, and I do believe she was a beautiful woman, being, even being older, but it's more than that. And here this couple comes in, and it gets right to Pharaoh. And it says, and this is the key in verse 15, they commended her. They commended her. If you have the NIV, it might say they praised her before Pharaoh. Now mark that word commended or praised and write the Hebrew word next to it, H-A-L-A-L, halal. You are familiar with that Hebrew word because it sounds a lot like hallelujah. The word means to shine. And when you say hallelujah, you are then praising, shining the light on, Yahweh, your God. When you are declaring hallelujah, you are shining the light on your God. And this is the first mention. Again, in Genesis, we have a lot of first mentions. This is the first mention of this Hebrew word. 
And the first mention of this Hebrew word, halal, which is the root of hallelujah, is connected to Abram and Sarai, connected to faith. It's also connected to her beauty. And even though this word most often is used to praise and worship God, here it is a Hebrew word that's used to reference a godly woman. I mean, it's a pretty serious word. Most often in the scriptures, it's a word directed toward God. But in this case, in the early stages of Abram's faith, it's used toward and directed directly toward from these pagan men to their pagan leader, a praise toward this godly woman of faith, which leads me to believe that those in Egypt saw something more than her physical beauty. It was more than just a... I'm sure there were other pretty women in Egypt. And I'm sure there were other pretty Semitic women in Egypt. And I'm sure that Pharaoh's harem was filled with pretty pretty women. I don't think it's merely, merely outward beauty that such a word would be used in the scriptures to describe her. What they were seeing was something intangible. What they were experiencing was something deeper than just looks and appearances. Just made up hair and makeup and jewelry which is what the world values today. Not only, does that world, not only do we live in a world system that values the outward beauty, but they'll even take a picture and filter it and take a picture and manipulate it. Photoshop, filters to take away so that, no, 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 it's even more than that, but it's all unreal, it's fake, it's nothing to be captivated with. It's repetitive. This is not what Sarai, she's not, she's not putting her pictures through Photoshop for this. She, she's not presenting herself with some filter that takes, takes away the, the lines or the age in her. That's not it. There's something deeper in her. And at the same time, she still has an outward attractiveness to her. And to me, it just blows my mind. They're seeing something inward in her that is shining outward. Even as this word is used to describe the shining of attention toward God, it's also used here, women and men. It's used here to describe a shining in this godly woman's life. There's something going on inside of her that's bringing out an outward burning of glory and the blessing of God. It's noticeable. It's palpable. And this could be a a little insight. This could be a little insight of what Jesus taught us. And one of the best ways to follow Jesus when you're reading the scriptures is just to take his words at the most simple definition. Just let him say, let Jesus say what he says and obey that. And you remember what he says? I want you to consider what's going on in Abram and Sarai's life. And there, there's some attraction there, something deep here, so much so that those leaders went. And, and now as it's described as this, she is halal. you got to see this. They praised her to him. Not just say, hey, there's some pretty woman that came in. There's, there's a praising, a commending going on. And listen to what Jesus said. Let me read it to you in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Hear the words being used of something much deeper than 
just outward beauty. And it reminded me of a passage in the New Testament. It might have reminded you of that too, as you're like, when are you going to get there, Ed? When are you going to get there, Ed? When are you going to get there? Right now. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. This may lead to what the Holy Spirit inspired our brother Peter to write when he looks back on the example of Sarai. Turn with me, 1 Peter chapter 3, and then pick up there as he's giving us instruction, and he's speaking to the wives here, pick up in verse 1. And again, as I've shared with you so many times, please listen again, maybe this is the first time you're hearing it, but whenever there's a passages of Scripture that surround great controversy, here's what I want you to do. Don't get involved in the controversy first. Look for something close to the controversy that's super simple to understand and receive it. Because this is a controversial passage, even as I read it. It's going to be, what? I can't believe this. What guys, are you stuck in the 14th century or whatever? But that's what he says. He says, likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Oh, I'm not going to be submissive to anyone. And there's a big argument. And I've already taught on that. So you can listen to the studies on the beauty of submission in marriage, the beauty of submission in society. Don't get caught up in the controversy. Because he says, even if some don't obey the word, that they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And then notice, when they up, what does your Bible say? Uh, what does your Bible say? Say it out loud. Observe. Is that what your Bible says? That's what mine says. When they observe, what are they going to observe? Your outward beauty? The making up of your body? Your makeup? Your No, no. What they're going to observe? They're going to observe your chase conduct. They're going to observe your behavior. They're going to observe the, the life of Christ inside of you radiating out of you in a very difficult marriage. He says, verse 3, don't let your beauty be that outward adorning of the arranging of hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel, but let it be, which is a forceful command statement in the Greek, let it be the hidden person of the heart the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. It may not be valued and precious in the sight of your husband right now. But remember, the end doesn't justify the means. God dictates the means. How will you reach a difficult husband? How will you reach, by way of extension, by application, how will you reach a difficult wife or a, a difficult, like it's not, the outward primarily, it's the inward life. That's what's seen. And he describes it. He says, well, you want an example? Well, look, in, Matt, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God adorned themselves, submissive to their own husband, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. What a great faith Sarai has here to obey her husband. I mean, she could have said, I'm not telling anybody I'm your sister. But she submitted to it. Very challenging. And it was that inward beauty of Sarai that was noticed, even by unbelievers. Even by those, she was beautiful, but it was deeper. 
As a godly woman, she was the whole package. She was inwardly more valuable to the Lord and to her husband than just outward beauty. And it's, this is not, this is, the, these words among us should not be shocking, but this is not our culture. This is a very countercultural message. Cultivate the inward person. Cultivate who you are in Christ. Be the, the, the type of woman and by application the type of man that inwardly cares more about the inward than you do the outward. And, and what we see, I think, coming back to chapter 12 now, what we see as one of the benefits of that is that you're beautiful outward and inward. It's not about the outward looks. It's about who you are inward, and that makes you beautiful, period. And that's where she is here. And just thinking, man, the same word that is used to praise God is praising the presence of God upon Sarah's life. It's amazing. And Abram was blessed because of her. Treated well. Not because of his lie, but because of the grace of God. And his care and concern for the plan of bringing Messiah. However, the truth comes out. And you know this by now, right, church? The truth will always come out. It will never be hidden forever. If not come out in this life, it will be revealed at the great white throne judgment or at the Bema seat judgment of Christ where our lives are examined as believers. The truth will come out and justice will prevail. And so the Lord plagued Pharaoh, it says in verse 17, because of Sarai. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, and, and somehow we're not told exactly how, but whether it's him making the right conclusion or some supernatural revelation, Pharaoh goes, this is your fault. I'm plagued because of you. So that tells me it was more than just a transaction to bring me your wife. There was some kind of something going on there where Abram continued to play along with it. More horses, more donkeys in exchange for my wife. Here you go. And we're both alive. And we're eating during famine, but outside the will of God. And you know, you're only going to be outside the will of God for so long before the Lord stops it. And that's what happens here. And, and I don't, please, don't miss this. Abram is rebuked by an unbeliever. You ever been rebuked by an unbeliever? That is one of the most humbling things. And it's not just, well, you know, I thought Christians weren't better than that. I mean, when you are truly caught in sin and an unbeliever catches you on it before anyone else. Not just, oh, you know, believers are hypocrites. Not that. I mean, this is... This is your fault, Abram. You are living a lie. That's what he says. Basically, he says, hey, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Now, I'm sure Pharaoh has taken many people's wives, so don't let him take the moral high road here. God is just using Pharaoh to bust his boy. That's what he's doing here. Why'd you say she's my sister, verse 19? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here's your wife. Take her and go your way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. A couple of lessons here before we leave. Number one, when we sin, we affect others. And Sarai paid a high price 
for the sin of her husband. She participated in it. Reminds us of Ananias and Sapphira a little bit where they conspired together, cooperated together, but her husband led. Men, you're the leader of your home. You're the leader of your marriage. You're the leader of your kids, so lead wisely. Take your family to the Lord. Lead them in the ways of God. And because Abraham wavered, he put both his wife and the king of Egypt in grave danger. And if a temptation has you in a place where you're debating whether to sin or not, listen, if a temptation in your life right now has placed you where you are in a place of debating whether it's sin or not, then I want you to think about your influence. I want you to think about your family and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors. It's not worth it. Well, but Ed, it's not... It's just not worth it. It will cause great harm, some seen and some unseen. But not only that, you know, poor Pharaoh here, he doesn't know what's going on in the spiritual realm. It's hard to say this, but you might even say he's kind of an innocent player in all this. Not quite innocent because he's a rebellious pagan, but still, nonetheless, in Abram and Sarah's life, he doesn't know what's happening. He's just dealing with stuff right in front of him. And judgment falls upon him, but not on Abram, on, but God used it on Pharaoh for great significance. Because this is the covenant results that was promised previously. Abram, God is keeping his promise to Abram, even though Abram failed. Because God is the promise giver, and also God is the promise keeper. And he's keeping his promise here. God says, I'm still going to keep my covenant with you, Abram. I'm still going to accomplish my will. No matter what your sinful behaviors are, the New Testament, New Covenant equivalent of that is what? The grace of God. We've already learned about the grace of God because the first mention of the grace of God was in the midst of a difficult days of Noah. And what does it say about Noah? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abram did too. And so did Isaac, and so did Jacob, so did Ed, and so did you. That is how God deals with his children. I want you to take note of the pattern here because the prophetic word of God is filled with patterns, repetitive patterns. And don't want you to miss this pattern. You may have never seen it before, but it's going to repeat itself again for the whole nation of Israel. The same exact thing. Where Israel left the land of promise and were driven down to Egypt because of a famine. And they became enslaved by the Egyptians because of that choice. Just like Sarah did. And yet God brings judgment upon Pharaoh. And the next thing you know, the nation leaves Egypt with all their stuff. And what happened with Abram now becomes a picture and a type of what's going to happen with the nation of Israel not many years from now. It's a pattern prophetically that tells us God's covenant is unconditional. It's based on His character, His nature. And the character of his promises are rooted in the grace of God. And he's going to do it even as we learn from our painful mistakes. I like to put it this way. You're going to accomplish the will of God in your life and you're going to do it the easy way or you're going to do it the hard way. And I think we all have testimonies of both in our lives, don't we? Where we've taken the easy way and we've loved it, but we've also taken the hard way and hated it. But at the end, the Lord still accomplished his purposes. So I commend you today as your pastor and as your friend, go the easy way. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he'll lift you up. 
Respond to him in obedience. Live a life of faith, fidelity, integrity, truthfulness, and let the Lord deal with the outcome. Don't think you control the outcome. You don't. Maybe temporarily you're getting what you want, but manipulation will never lead you to the will of God the easy way. It'll always lead you to the will of God the hard way. And so, Father, thank you for the revelation in the life of Sarah, for the prophetic insight in Abram's life toward the nation of Israel in the future. And God, we just come to you asking for you to lead us in the way of everlasting, that we might grow in your grace and not choose the hard way, not choose compromise, not to lean on the arm of the flesh, that we would be reminded that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and the two are contrary to one another so that we not, don't do the things that we wish. And we just come to you fresh and clean tonight, submitting our lives to you. And even so, Lord, for some, I pray you would get them out of the mess that they've created, that they might be revealed with all fidelity and integrity and honesty, that the light, that what is hidden in darkness will come to light And that if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. May we walk in the light tonight, individually and together. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.